It's back to basics, y'all. Back to basics, back to basics. Teaching you truth that you really need to know. Back to basics, back to basics. Talking about the church, living life to the fullest. Faith. Well, hey, guys. Thank you guys for saying hi back. That made me feel very loved. Uh, well, guys, thank you so much for being here tonight. Uh, we're continuing our series, Back to Basics. And uh, last week we talked about worship, and we worshiped together, and it was amazing. And so I hope that we can take what we learned last week, and we can apply it to every week from here on out. And I kind of felt that this uh, uh, tonight when we started the worship set, all of us just singing together. Uh, so let's carry that through this message in, in the time of invitation as well. Uh, but tonight we're talking about, like the video said, faith. And faith is an interesting thing because um, we have this idea of being saved by faith and faith alone. Uh, but then we have this dueling side, this side that tells you that you're saved by works, uh, by the things that you can do. And life kind of tells us that. You know, it tells us that we're only as good as our job or the clothes on our back or the car that we can buy or how many good deeds we can do to add up. And um, this image I get in my head is this ladder. And every time we try to do a good deed to get our way to heaven, we climb one rung and, and one rung more and one rung more. But then what happens is, is we slip. We fall, we stumble, we make a mistake, and, and we end up falling down this ladder. And it's this unending cycle. And uh, recently this week, what actually made me think about this illustration is there's a person here, a Thrive member, who was doing some painting at her condo and uh, was on a ladder and now has a hole in her wall and a broken shin uh, from falling off the ladder. Not saying names, Bethany. Uh, so make, make fun of her for being graceful. But what happens is so many times in life is we try to work our way up this ladder. And when we fall, we feel broken, we feel hurt, we feel unqualified, we feel like we can't be seen by a holy, perfect, honest God. And so it actually has the reverse effect because it makes it really hard for us to embrace salvation. It makes it hard for us to accept love in our life. And so what God said was, you know what, I know that you're going to fall down those rungs and I know that you can never make your way up here, so I'm going to send myself down that ladder. I'm going to give myself to you, and all you have to do to receive salvation is have faith in me, to believe that I came down to earth, I died on a cross for your sins, and you're redeemed. That's it. But then we see in Scripture, in James, and in Paul's writing, this conflicting idea, because it talks about how faith without works is dead. And so you have all these people saying, okay, well, does faith save you, or does work save you, or does, do both save you? You know, what is the proper Christian equation? So I want to talk about that tonight, and I want to talk about four uh, points about faith that I want us to hold on to. Uh, but before we get started, would you guys pray with me? God, just thank you so much for tonight, and thank you for each person in this room, God. Thank you for the beautiful day you've given us. Uh, God, I want to pray for good weather tomorrow so we can enjoy it with our families and fellowship. Um, God, just thank you for every heart in this room, however broken they might be. Uh, however full of joy or sadness, uh, God, we know that you're here with each of us, wherever we might be coming from. Uh, God, I just pray that you would clear out all distractions, all the things in our life and our mind that are weighing on us right now, so that we can just focus on what you want us to hear. Uh, faith is so cr critical and crucial. And so, God, allow us to cling to how you're always faithful. Allow us to have faith, God, in something bigger than ourselves, and that being you, a God who is good, who never fails who has done good for us so many times and is constantly working. God, thank you for that grace, love, and mercy. We ask all these things in your son's name. Amen. 
So how many of you guys have ever tried to go on a diet? Just pop up your hand. That's actually a lot of you guys. I'm sorry. Um, I'm, I've always been the kid who just loses weight. So I've always been trying to eat more, eat more, eat more. I'm those people that you hate because my metabolism just keeps me skinny. Um, yeah. It kind of sucks when you play football, you know. But uh, oh, he's got sour ups, gummy worms or something. We found out this weekend that Jeff has a sweet tooth. That eventually will catch up to you and you'll get the dad bod, but we won't talk about that. But if you've ever had a diet and it's failed, uh, you can relate to a guy from history. And this guy is William the Conqueror. How many of you guys know who William the Conqueror is? Almost none of you. You only know because you're my roommate. William the Conqueror was a man who lived almost a thousand years ago. And it was said that he was so fat that he had problems getting on his horse and actually staying there. And so he had to have his men help him up on his horse. And so his solution was this French king decided that he would lock himself in his room and consume nothing but alcohol. A diet that probably wasn't effective, but many of you might want to take part in. Um, I can't say that we're Baptist, I'm sorry. Um, So though the days that followed this diet were probably undoubtedly interesting, um, the diet didn't work, duh. And so he eventually died in 1087 when he fell off his horse at the siege of Mantes. I know I shouldn't laugh at that because this guy died, but to me that's hilarious. Just imagine that in your head, this huge fat man falling off this little horse. But it said that he was so obese that the clergy had trouble fitting him into his casket. And the stench of his body filled the chapel with a disgusting, foul smell. And I want us to look tonight uh, at the fact that there is a silver lining in this story about this fat man falling off his horse and dying. And that is, at least his horse must have felt some relief. That's so inappropriate, but that's okay. You can take from that that some days were William the Conqueror and some days were the horse. Uh, But the alcohol diet obviously didn't work, but it probably got plenty popular. You see, we're more accustomed today to hearing about and trying out the Atkins diet, the South Beach diet. Maybe it's the Sonoma diet. Maybe it's Melody Hoppius' boot camp. Uh, Maybe it's something like the cabbage soup diet or the astronaut's diet, the F-plan, the zone. We even see Oprah throwing away her Opti-fast diet that once lightened her 67 pounds and uh, looking at being an advocate of good eating and portion control. Talk about a diet that didn't work. Uh, When he was having trouble fitting into his white jumpsuits, the king, Elvis Presley, took on the Sleeping Beauty diet plan. He would heavily sedate himself for days in order to try to lose weight. Maybe if it wasn't for all those peanut butter and banana sandwiches he kept deep frying, this diet would actually have worked for him. Other weight loss plans that haven't worked are the Vision Dieter glasses. These were uh, glasses that were designed in 1993 that actually made food less appealing. Uh, When you looked through it, it put like dirt and scum and stuff on your food. It was disgusting. So it failed, obviously. Uh, Another one of these weird eccentric dieting things were the mini fork system. Uh, They were these tiny little forks designed to help you take smaller bites. And it was supposed to confuse your brain that you actually ate more than, uh, than you actually did. And then there was one group that applied yoga practices, and they believed that they could actually remove the need to eat absolutely completely. Uh, I believe that there's a special place somewhere for those people. You don't take away my food. The most embarrassing moment probably of American weight loss history was in 1903. How many of you guys know who the fattest president was ever to be in the White House? Just pop up your hand. Taft. Taft weighed 355 pounds, the heaviest president in all of history, and he's the only president to ever have gotten stuck in the White House bathtub. 
<laughs> he vowed to reduce his weight after that, and the Americans' love-hate relationship with dieting continued ever since. So sooner or later, if you're really wanting a diet that works, you just have to bite the bullet and get a good workout plan. You have to stay committed to that plan. You have to educate yourself on eating right and proper sleeping habits. You have to commit to something uh, that no fad could give you, uh, regardless of the celebrity that's pitching you a product later on in an infomercial. You see, diet, uh, diet is one thing, but having faith with an almighty God is a completely different thing. And while a healthy physical life is obviously important because Scripture talks about how our bodies are God's temple and we should revere our bodies, a life and an abundant life here on earth and a secure eternal life is far more important to God. You see, we can't afford to have laughable faith fads on our bookshelves that last no more than some of our dieting efforts. Thankfully, there's help. There's a real plan for our spiritual health. For faith that works, you can find it in the Bible. Imagine that. You see, there's no quick fix, there's no fad, there's no thing that will instantly take you to where you want to be, to that level of a mature Christian, but there's a plan that will work as long as we put it into action. And so I want to do uh, these four points that will help us get there. The first one is this, a faith that works is a faith that works. Seems a bit redundant, but if you think about it, it makes sense. There's a famous line from James chapter 2, verse 18 that you guys probably have all heard, and it says this. It says, Someone will say, You have faith and I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds, and I will show you my faith by what I do. You see, James wasn't the only writer in the New Testament who believed in this idea of faith that works hard. For all of his teachings on grace and the foundational theology of salvation by faith alone, Paul was only committed to this idea of faith plus works. And perhaps Paul's most famous passage on salvation by grace alone, and not by works, he immediately describes a faith that will indeed be hard at work. Uh, we can read that in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 10, if you want to jot that down on your phone. And it says this, For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves is a gift from God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So first he's saying, not by works. For we are God's workmanship, Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And so we see two parts in this. We see the fact that we are saved by faith and faith alone. But we see the second part is God has created each of us, every single one of us, to do good works. To do good works. See, guys, thoughts frame your portraits, but actions paint it. Thoughts frame your portraits, but actions paint it. You see, just as clearly as Paul said we weren't saved by works, he immediately adds that we are created in Christ to do good works, work that God had long ago planned for us to do. Uh, this weekend, we did a, a project called CIA Day. And if you don't know what a CIA Day is, it stands for Compassion in Action. And uh, last year, we had two service projects that we did at church. They were two food giveaways. And when we were at staff retreat, we said, you know, we need to be more evangelical. We need to do more in the community, give back more. And so we decided to do one of these CIA days every single week. And if you were here, I know a lot of you guys were, and I appreciate the volunteers and the help. Um, but if you were here, you got to be a part of something amazing where faith and works work together. Uh, you got to see how almost 70 families were affected by uh, getting this food. That's almost 500 people who have groceries for this next month. I mean, that's amazing. And you talk about living a life that actually is filling and meaningful and abundant. And that's what it's all about. See, so many times I have people come up to me and they say, Blake, I'm just lost. I'm so confused. I feel like I don't have a purpose. I don't have a place. I don't belong. 
I'm not good enough to do anything big or, or worthy or great. I don't have a purpose. And we have in this scripture the core essence of what we were all created to do. It says we were created by Christ to do great works. And I just want to tell you guys something today. If you want your life to be full, do something for someone else. Stop focusing on you and stop having these selfish needs, these things that you think will fill you. It doesn't matter how many times you'll max out your credit card to buy things that you think will fill that hole. It doesn't matter how many times you'll turn to a bottle to fill that hole. It doesn't matter how many times you'll do good works to make you feel better. If your good works are for other people, God-centered and led by Him, that is the abundant life that Jesus promises us. That is the only way for us to be full and content. So many of us are wandering around searching for purpose when God has clearly given it to us here in the Scripture. He's, he's laid it out for us that all we have to do is put our faith into action. See, salvation is by faith through grace, but discovering what it is to follow Jesus isn't just some spiritual magic or, or something that happens to Christians even if they never put forth the effort to live in a Christ-modeling manner. Consider the way that Jesus made his disciples. This is kind of interesting. See, he invited people to follow him as students, but look at the people who actually responded and experienced discipleship. Only certain people got to experience being discipled by Jesus Christ himself. We see people like Peter and Andrew. Peter and Andrew knew that experience. But then we see other people like the rich young ruler who never got that opportunity to be discipled because they walked away from it. Because their faith didn't turn into faith plus works plus an action. Their faith didn't walk their feet closer to Jesus. We see, all, we see in the story of Nicodemus that he slowly came to follow but most of the other religious experts didn't. And have you noticed the trend of the miracle stories in the Bible? All the stories that talk about Jesus working miracles. He does something interesting when he talks about his miracles. Uh, he asks these key faith questions before miracles. And then we see in the case of the woman who touches the fringe of Jesus' robe, it took an action in order for that miracle to occur. It took her faith pushing her into doing something to draw her closer to Jesus for that healing to occur. You see, the people who were healed not only had faith, but they had faith that took them to where Jesus was and obeyed what he said to do. And obeyed what he said to do. See, the commitment of working at something you believe in isn't difficult to comprehend. If you want the job, you'll have to prepare the resume. You'll have to fill out the application. You'll have to go to the interview. You might have to shake some hands. It might be awkward and uncomfortable for you. But without that effort, without that stuff before the job, you'll never have the job. You'll never get that end result. You see this a lot in relationships. If you had that special person in your life that you think might make a good spouse, there'll be no discover of that reality without some awkward text or, or a prop, uh, you walking up to them at church or a place uh, of work. It'll never happen without a phone call, an email, a call, uh, a DM, whatever. It takes an action first to get that end result. It takes an action by us step out in faith and move into that action for us to get something. And so I want to do a little uh, sidebar for the single girls in here. I don't know if we have that many, but single girls in here, this is for you. If you're a single girl, stop chasing guys. Uh, that is not a biblical concept for you to be chasing guys. Play hard to get. Uh, that's what God wants you to do is play hard to get. Don't make it easy for him. And if you are a single guy in the room, it is your job to pursue the woman some of you guys can't even walk across the room and say your name to a girl. And, and I'm just being honest. And if you guys don't have a J-O-B, don't even think about walking over and talking to a girl. I'm just saying. 
But it's our job, it's our call as men to be pursuing women. And I know that because God gives us examples in his scripture. He talks about how he loved his bride and his bride was the church. And we see examples of God pursuing his bride. God pursuing his church. But so often, guys, in church, we get that backwards. We think that by us pursuing God should mean that he responds. He responds to our prayer. He responds to our goodness. He responds to the things we do. But really, he has pursued us. We have a holy father who has pursued his bride, the church, you and me, in this place. Met us exactly where we are, and it's our responsibility to respond. And sometimes I think about it like this. Imagine getting the most eloquent, beautiful love letter that you've ever gotten in your entire life, and then just responding with a K. How many of you guys is that your pet peeve when you get a text message back that says K, just K? Yeah, if you ever text me a K, I'll probably block you from my phone. I hate it. I cannot stand it. Chris does it to me all the time. Um, I can't block him because I work with him, but I hate it. It's awful. It's not that difficult to put an O before the K. Um, but the reason that I hate it so much is because it feels so insincere and, and so unthoughtful. Um, when I was preparing for this message, I started thinking back to the days where I was a, a true lady killer. And uh, I wanted to share with you a story from when I was six years old. Handsome, dashing, filled with Harry Potter glasses and swiped over hair. And uh, I had my first crush. She was beautiful. Uh, her name was Lindsay Tackett. She had braces. She constantly wore her hair in two ponytails. All the boys chased after her. She could double dutch like no other. And uh, I remember this day um, at school, we were supposed to be doing one of those mad minute math work, you know, and I hated math, so I spent that minute writing a love letter. And this love letter read something like this. Dear Lindsay, and it was spelled wrong because I couldn't spell worth crap uh, at six years old. Still can't today. Thank you, AJ. I'll remember that. I know where you sleep. It said, Dear Lindsay, I think you're pretty. I want to date a pretty girl. Will you be my girlfriend? And it was one of these beautiful love notes where you have the boxes, you know. And it said, Yes or no. And um, so I, I was expecting this amazing response, you know. I was expecting that when I went back out to the playground for recess that I would get to push her on the swing and we could hold hands back to class. It would be this beautiful love story. But... When we went out to recess, one of her friends, because she didn't want to do it herself, carried the note back, and she had crossed out all of the words except for your and written in smelly. I still know Lindsay to this day, and I'll never let her live that down. But so often, guys, that story is ridiculous. I know, but it's true. So often in our life, God has given us his word. He's given us this beautiful love letter to us. He's told us that we are children of the one true king, and he gives us these promises of hope and, and faith and restoration and peace and strength. And we respond by just saying, okay, and walking away and living our life, just going through the motions. You see, God is pursuing us, but it's our responsibility to respond. We have to respond. We have to allow our faith to move us into a response, to move us into works. And that's how we live an abundant life. That's holy and pleasing to a God who pursues us. See, James was apparently dissatisfied with people who talk the talk but never got around to walking the walk. Uh, they had the feelings but no work. We read in James chapter 2, verses 20 through 22, it says this. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, 
And his faith was made complete by what he did. Um, I know that this whole idea of them working together can be really confusing. And so we put together a really quick video that hopefully will help us understand this idea a little bit better. So check this out. Faith works salvation. Man, talk about your polarizing topics. Everyone has an opinion on them. Can we work our way to heaven? Does it just simply take faith? And what is an authentic faith? Well, let's investigate the arithmetic behind these important questions and see how the truth really adds up. Some people believe that works equals salvation. Simply put, this is man's effort to work his way up to God and become acceptable in his sight. This is a view of religion that lots of good works equals salvation. However, Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace that you have been saved, through faith, not works, so that no one can boast. Sounds like something's wrong with our equation. So let's scratch works and replace it with faith. Surely that's all we need to make our equation correct. Well, we need to tread carefully here. You see, faith is ultimately what makes us acceptable to God, and we know without faith it's impossible to please God. But this equation is incomplete. James chapter 2, verse 17 says that faith by itself isn't enough. Unless it produces good deeds, it is dead and useless. So works must be factored into the equation. One popular view of the salvation formula is faith plus works equals salvation. People think that belief in Christ is important, but that salvation is still dependent on doing enough good with their life. They rightly acknowledge the expectation that works are involved, but they confuse why they're there. It may be subtle, but it's wrong. Why? Well, look at this quick math lesson. We can all agree that 2 plus 3 equals 5. Thus, since this equation is true, it also means that 3 equals 5 minus 2. A true equation holds up, regardless of how you move the pieces around. We call them fact families. So let's return to the formula. If faith plus works equals salvation is true, then the formula of faith equals salvation minus works must also be true. We've already talked about how this kind of faith just doesn't add up. So let's try this one more time. We are saved by faith. But James does add something to the equation by challenging us by what our faith should look like. It's not that works create our salvation, rather it's that works should accompany our salvation. That's an authentic faith. Growing in Christ-likeness in such a way that our lives bear the fruit of good works. And yes, I know what you're thinking. If this fact family is true, then faith minus works equals salvation must also be true. And so, if you have no works, are you saved? Let's just say while we can celebrate God's amazing grace, the expectation of God's word is that we would see the fruit of our real faith. So while the math might add up, it should bother you that your life is not. The fact is, you're saved by faith alone, but the faith which saves is never alone. Still not sure about all this? Well, you do the math. So the point here in this idea of faith plus works is that we have to use them together in order to get where we want to be. But so often in our life, we get to this place where 
we, we have our faith and we have what we believe and we want to move into works. We want to do something for God. We feel inspired by God to, to do something. We go to a youth camp or a revival or a church service and we want to go out these doors and be effective. But so many of us end up getting stuck for whatever reason. Something comes up in our life, this obstacle, this, this thing gets in front of us and it prevents us from following through with our faith. Uh, there's a story that I want to share with you. Uh, I'm, I'm all about the stories tonight. But uh, we used to live at this place, and it was a bi-level house. And at the bi-level, we had a deck. And this deck had a, probably an eight-foot runway going off the deck into an above-ground pool. Now, uh, for those of you that know me will understand that this is kind of weird. But when I was a kid, I loved to swim. Uh, I loved the pool. I loved water. Uh, I can't swim now. I hate the water. I hate the pool. But I loved it when I was a kid. I absolutely loved it. And we would always terrify our grandparents by sprinting down this runway and and diving and jumping and flipping into our pool. And that was the strip where splinters always happened, you know, because you're going full speed down this runway. And I remember one day I was showing off because I was 13 and thought I was cool. And I was going to do this awesome double front flip. And so I needed a lot of speed. And so I, I backed myself all the way up to the house and I just took off. And about the time I got three steps before jumping off, my sister appeared from underneath the water on the ladder right where I was running towards. And so this obstacle was presented in front of me, and I had two options. One, try to Superman over her and get into the pool, or two, pump the brakes and try to stop myself. Well, because I'm an idiot, I tried to stop myself. And so not only did I still end up in the pool, I had about a five-inch splinter in my foot from that runway. And uh, this story is kind of painful for me to relive and because it ruined swimming for me for the rest of my life. But I think it helps us understand this concept that so many times in our life we have this faith experience, this something that gives us joy, and we want to move into action. But when we do that, when we take off full speed, 100 miles ahead, the devil brings an obstacle up in your life. And you have to make a choice. You have to say, you know what, am I strong enough, am I capable enough to divert and go around this obstacle? Can I prevent this from happening, from something bad to occur? And we rely on our own strength, our own understanding, our own ability, and we say, you know what, nope, I can't do that. You know, maybe for you, it's God puts a person in your life that he says, you know what, I want you to talk to that person, and I want you to tell them about Jesus. And you really want to do it, and you go up to him, and you get the gumption, and you start talking to him, and they immediately shut you down. And instead of continuing, you just walk away and feel defeated. You avert the obstacle. I don't know what exactly it is for you. Maybe it's something that God is calling you into. God is calling you to give up an addiction or, or something that is binding you. And, and you get the gumption up and you take off in faith. But then you say, you know what? I need that. I need it. I have to have it. I'm bound by it. And so you give into it because of your flesh, because of what you can do, your ability, your strength. You see, the problem here with this is that we rely on ourselves instead of God. We put our faith in our ability instead of his. And what happens is we just end up with splinters. We just end up hurt. And looking stupid, honestly. So many times that happens in our life. And so what, what we need to get into the understanding of is trusting in a faith that's bigger than our own understanding. And trusting in a God that appreciates cannonballs. Trusting in a God that doesn't lead you into the swimming pool just so you can drown. The second point that I want to talk about is a faith that works will be tested. You see, James didn't waste any time getting around to this point. Right off the bat with his dear church greeting... Barely out of his mouth, he starts teaching. And lesson number one involved teaching about faith and the testing of our faith. It says in James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kind. 
Because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. And perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Is there anybody in the room tonight that's not lacking anything? That's an amazing idea and concept to me. Not lacking anything. And then to think of how you get there. It doesn't say uh, you get there by your good works. It doesn't say you get there because God just decides that you're pretty and you're going to be blessed and you're just going to have everything handed to you. It doesn't say that your life's going to be easy or rosy and you're always going to have the answer. And if you start reading your Bible, that immediately things are going to click and you're going to stop sinning and you're going to live this perfect life. But it says through trials, through the hard stuff, through the moments that break you, because that's when you develop perseverance and that's what causes you to be complete and lacking nothing. See, there's probably people in this room tonight who feel like they can't catch a break. Uh, Maybe that's you. You feel like the world is just punching you in the face and then exchanging that with a gut punch and and just knocking you down. Maybe you're heartbroken or you're hurting for a person in your life who's struggling with something. Know that God is going to use that and redeem your story. In Japan in the 15th century, there was an emperor. And this emperor had all of these old broken pots and pans that had all these cracks in them. And this guy was really smart because he decided that he wasn't going to fix these things with the typical metal staples that were used to fix pots and pans. But instead, he decided to use gold lacquer. And one time, somebody asked this emperor, why did you use gold lacquer on these old pots and pans? And he said, because I believe that things can be made beautiful once they're broken. See, I think God believes the same thing is true. I think when we surrender our broken lives, the things that have hurt us, that have cracked us, and allow God to fill us with his pureness, with something that we can't get from the world, not with something cheap or authentic or something that you can buy, but with his love and his peace, that our brokenness can become beautiful because it's a redeemed story of God. He can do that in your life tonight. The next point I want to talk about is a faith that works will be patient. A faith that works will be patient How many of you guys struggle with being patient? Hurry up, guys. Raise your hand. Yeah. Yeah. I'm awful at being patient. I have absolutely no patience. But James chapter 5, 7 and 9 says this. Be patient then, brothers, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop and how patient he is for the autumn and the spring rains. You too, be patient and stand firm because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. I think there's two important parts for us to look at here in this uh, passage. The first is this idea of the farmer preparing his crops. Um, Some of you guys probably have seen the movie Facing the Giants, but they actually reference this passage of Scripture. And the janitor is talking to the football coach, and he's talking about two farmers. And each of these farmers had an option. They were in this horrible, horrible drought. And both of them were praying for God to work a miracle and bring the rain. But one of these farmers began to prepare his crops. He began to lay down the seed and do all the things that a farmer would need to do to get ready for the rain. And eventually that rain did come, but which person do you think profited from that rain? It was the person who actually prepared his crops. And so I think for each of us, in order for us to understand this, that a faith that works will be patient is that we have to put in the work in the time when God is working. We have to put in the work in the times that God is working. And so what does that look like? What does it look like to be patient when God is doing something that we don't yet see? 
Maybe for you, if you're struggling in your marriage, it means that you're in your Bible every single day reading scripture about relationships, reading scripture about women in the Bible who were good wives or, or men in the Bible who were good husbands. Maybe it's meeting with a person who's done life already, who's been where you've been, who can speak truth into your life. It's this preparation process saying, you know what, God, I'm going to do everything in my power so that when you move, I'm ready for it. You see, I think a lot of times we miss out on blessings in our life because God knows we can't handle them. Because our pride will get in the way. I know for me that there's been times in my life where I've wanted God to give me opportunity. There have been times in my life where I wanted God to give me chances to do things or be a part of things, and he hasn't. No matter how much I've prayed for them because my heart wasn't in the right place. I hadn't humbled myself and submitted to a holy father. See, we have to prepare our crops for the rain. But I think it's interesting here in James that there's two parts to this. See, the first is prepare your crops for rain, but the second is don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. You see, so many times we allow opinions and our grumblings to silence God's workings in our life. So many times we spend so much time arguing over opinion and preference and things that really are so menial at the end of the day. And people are dying and going to hell because we're wasting our time doing this. Going around and around and around when God is just wanting to work through us. But he can't because we're getting in the way. So it's time for us as a church and as people, one, to prepare our crops. To have the kind of faith that is patient, knowing that God is working in the times when we have to work also And not wasting our time fighting with each other, grumbling over opinion and preference. You see, it took Saul three years of intensive study and reflection to rethink his theology. We can read about that in Galatians. It took the disciples, and think about this, the disciples, men who were doing daily life with Jesus. They walked with Jesus, they ate with Jesus. Remember the times? I mean, they were with Jesus all the time. They slept in the same places as Jesus And it took them equally as long before they actually reached this place of maturity. And so we might live in a world of instant gratification, but there's nothing fast about finding a faith that works. You see, it's it's slow going. But this brings me to uh, a point that I think is really, really theological and wonderful, and it it involves a story. In college, my freshman year, um, we were um, doing this worship retreat, and it was like, 18 hours of solid worship, like this worship revival. And I remember um, doing this worship revival and feeling like absolutely on fire for God afterwards, but also extremely exhausted. And so me and some of my buddies who were part of the team um, were starving after this thing. And so we were going to go get some food. But it just so happened that in Campbellsville, on this particular weekend, um, all of the places that we typically went, which there was like three places in all of Campbellsville that you could go to eat uh, because it's in the middle of nowhere, uh, were either closed, um, broken, or they didn't have food. It was like Campbellsville apocalypse or something. And so we spent probably two hours after this revival. We were exhausted. We were hungry, trying to find food. Couldn't find it anywhere. So we ended up at Walmart. And uh, when we got to Walmart, we walked in, and we went back into the pizza section, and we bought all these frozen pizzas that we were going to uh, just make up for all the people that were a part of the revival. So we took them back to uh, the village, and the village was a place where they had ovens and fridges and stuff. Um, They were like little apartments kind of on campus. And so we were like, all right, we're all starving. We're all tired. What is the fastest way we can make these so we can eat and fall asleep? And so we're like, all right, first off, no pan. If we put a pan in it, then it's just going to take longer. I don't know where that reasoning came from, but that was our reasoning. 
Second thing, how hot can this oven go? And so, uh, <laughs> and so we realized that if you actually turn the knob, it goes past 475 degrees. And so we turned it all the way up. And uh, about mm, seven minutes later, um, we had campus security at the village um, for the fire complaint from the, the fire alarms going off and having to evacuate the entire building at 3 a.m. So suffice it to say, not only did we not get to eat that night, we had a lot of really ticked off people. My point in this is this, that don't turn your blessings into burnt pizza. Don't turn your blessings into burnt pizza. Don't rush God and and ask for these things and, and try to have these things come about so quickly that you miss out on the blessing, that you miss what God is doing in your life. Don't grow so impatient that you you settle for things that are of the world and not of God. But hold on. Hold fast to his faithfulness. If you don't like that food uh, analogy, I love analogies, so maybe this one will work for you. Choose refinement over a bitter wine. Choose refinement over a bitter wine. Now, that bitter wine has two meanings to it. The first is the church is filled with a lot of people who like to wine. A lot of bitter people who like to wine when God isn't working on their timetable. But see, a faith in God includes a faith in his timing. And, and so many times we waste time whining about things instead of embracing the refinement process that God is trying to do in our life. So we all have to make this choice. Are we going to be refined? Are we going to allow us to just drink this bitter wine? And you, know, you think about the process of the, the fermentation of wine itself. And the older a bottle gets, the more valuable it becomes. And I think the same is true with the Christian walk. And I'll probably get in trouble for comparing the Christian walk with wine. But the Christian walk is the same way. The longer that we are in our understanding with the Lord, the longer that we are in the Word, the longer that we surround ourselves with people that are filling us with truth and not uh, lies of the devil, the longer that we are around the good stuff, the more refined we become and the more valuable and the more worthy and the more uh, um, just abundant our lives become. And, And we get to the place where we can say at the end of our time, like Paul says, I've ran my race. And God can look at us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Because it's a refinement process. It's a day-to-day grind. It's not a a moment of of gratification. There's patience involved with faith. And then the last point that I want to talk about tonight, and I promise it's short, is this. A faith that works will be worth the effort. Return with me to the opening passage of James where we started. Take a good look at the reward of one who will be patient of one who will commit to a faith walk despite the testing, and of one who will take specific practical actions of discovering faith that works. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trial of many kind, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature, complete, and lacking anything. Not lacking anything. You see, the promises come at the end. The big finale happens at the end. It's not in the small moments. It's not in the moments that are temporary or now, but it's at the end. It's coming for each of us. That moment where we get to stand before the Lord complete and lacking nothing, where we can be mature. It's that moment that the MVP of the Super Bowl holds up that trophy, and you see that smile on his face. That smile is that feeling of being complete and lacking nothing. It's that moment when Miss America walks down the runway, as she's just been crowned, and and the cameras are taking her picture. But multiply those moments by a thousand, by a million, 
And that's what it's going to be like on the day when we get to stand before God, complete, lacking nothing, because our faith carried us to that place. You see, the Greek word for maturity, which means perfect, complete, not lacking anything, is teleos. Everybody say that, teleos. You'll sound really smart if anybody ever asks you what mature means in Greek. But James used that word five times, five times in his short letter. He found it to be pretty important, indicating that the instructions here are something of a manual on how to grow into maturity as a believer. See, we have a perfect manual in James of all these different parts of faith working with works, of faith being patient, and of faith being worth doing. All we have to do is step out into that faith. You see, faith is to believe in something we cannot see. But the reward of our faith is to see what we believe. Think about that for a second. I'll repeat it. Faith is to believe in something we cannot see. But the reward of our faith is to see what we believe. Let me try to give you some examples of that. Faith is to believe in something we cannot see. You're at your, your rope's end. You've been struggling with anxiety and depression for years. You feel like nobody gets you. You've always been in these dark places. But you have faith that God can redeem your story. And so you step into that faith and you start going to church and you start forcing yourself to get up from bed the next morning. Eventually what happens is God opens your eyes and says, let me show you what you believed in. Let me show you how I can work in your life, how I can redeem your story and take you from that broken place and move you to a position where you're speaking joy and truth in my spirit. That was my story. Maybe for you, it's this marriage that's been struggling. And you're at this place where you're like, I just feel like I need to give up on this relationship. I don't know if this is going to work. I don't know if I can keep doing this. But you know what? You say, I'm going to have faith in God that he can redeem my story. And so I'm going to work at it. I'm not willing to give up on this. I made a promise before God. And so I'm going to fight for this. And eventually, God says, you know what? I'm going to show you what you had faith in. I'm going to show you what you believe in by redeeming your story. And that can happen and be true for so many different experiences and things in life. That if you just put faith into them, if you believe that God can work through you and do those things, he's going to show you. And it might not even be here on earth, but someday he's going to look at you and say, my son, my daughter, well done. Well done. And that's something worth living for. That's something worth having faith in. See, so much of us waste our life. We waste so many opportunities. We waste so much time putting our faith in things that fail. We put our faith in other people. We put our faith in jobs and stuff. We even put our faith in pastors. I don't know why you do that. Because they will fail you and let you down every single time. Because people are flawed and sinful, no matter how good they are. But there is one person, there is one truth that we can cling to. All we have to do is choose to have faith in it that will never fail, that never has and never will. And if you don't believe me, look back on your life. I think every person in the room can look back to a point in their life where God has done something amazing in your life. Where God has taken a situation that should have ended really, really badly and said, you know what, I have a different plan for you. Can you guys all do that? It's just me. God will redeem each of our stories, but we have to surrender first and have faith that he will be working. Would you pray with me? God, sometimes it's really hard to trust you.
we're tempted to forget how big you are. We're tempted to rely on our own understanding and we put our faith in things that seem good, but really ultimately compared to you are nothing. And God, I know that sometimes for me, I struggle with my faith. I know that there are times when I just wanna cry out to you and I have to pray, God, give me faith to trust what you say, that you are good and your love is great. That you are good and your love is great. And so God, tonight, let that be our prayer, each and every one of us. You know, some of us might be in the room tonight and we are just rocking it out. We are living our lives every single day, putting our faith and hope in you. We are pursuing situations and opportunity to be used by you. We are surrendering every morning, laying down our wants, our needs, our desires to carry your cross. And we're just crushing it. But I believe there's some people in the room who are at a point in their life where they just feel like giving up. Where they're just holding on by their fingertips, God. And so God, would you remind them that you're a God that reaches down his hand to us and pulls us off that ledge and hugs us and, said, and says, my son, my daughter, my child, I love you so much that I'm gonna help you through this, that I'm gonna grow you through this. And it might hurt and it might be hard and it might not be pretty, but at the end, oh, at the end, you're gonna be complete. God, can we have faith in that tonight? Would you allow us to, to be open to that and be filled by that truth tonight, God? Lord, if there's a person in this room who's never surrendered to you, who's never said, God, I need you or put their faith in you at all, God, would you tell them tonight that you're there? And if that is you in the room tonight, I wanna encourage you by saying that we have a God who scripture says is jealous for us. What that means is God doesn't like it when we give our lives to the world, when we give our lives to empty, broken things. But God wants you right now, no matter how messy you are, no matter how broken you are, no matter how messed up you are, he doesn't care. He wants you. And scripture says Christ demonstrates his love for us that while we were still sinners, he wants to meet you tonight, tonight in this place. And he wants to reach down and give you the father kind of hug that you deserve and have been waiting for. And so I wanna encourage you, if that's you in the room, would you just surrender tonight and start living your life, putting your faith in something that will carry you through the tough times. A faith that is authentic and real, that leads you into a response of good works, of doing life for other people. God, thank you for your grace that covers all of our sin. God, thank you for this church where we can grow together, where we can talk about hard truths, where we can stumble over words and your scripture and just learn together and that be okay. Where we can have nights where we just say, God, you know what? I really need to just surrender this to you. I just need to let go of this. God, would you give us all in this place that sense of transparency and peace to do that tonight? God, thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. During this time, um, this next song, I don't want anybody to, to move. You guys can stand and sing, but uh, we're gonna have a time of invitation after. But I really want you to focus on these words. This song is called Give Me Faith, and I quoted it in my prayer. But I want us to sing this song with such a passion and a fire in our hearts. Sing this song that is so much more than words because it says, give me faith to trust what you say, that you're good and your love is great. 
And I love the part where it says, I may be weak, but your spirit's strong in me. My flesh may fail, but my God, you never will. Would you cling to that truth tonight that no matter how many times we give up on God, we lose our faith in God that he never gives up on us. Would you stand and sing?
So this time we're going to move into invitation. And we talked last week about all the parts of this time. We talked about communion and what it really represented, this tangible way to feel God in our life. His body broken for us. His blood poured out to redeem our past, our mistakes, those bad years. We have an altar that you can come and pray on, but you don't have to pray on this altar because we talked about the fact that the altar is just the state of your heart. So maybe tonight you just need to get real with God and right where you're at, say, God, reposition my heart on you. You guys can give tithes at this time if you want. And if you want somebody to pray with you, I'll be down front. You know, we talk about faith tonight. And I think one of the hardest things for us to get our head around when it comes to faith is that we live in a very skeptical world. And I think the reason for that is because we're surrounded by so many people who break promises. So many people who let us down. That, that we grow to protect ourselves by not trusting in something and not giving ourselves to them fully, completely, wholly. But there's a God who is always faithful and always there. And while I might not know everything, I do know some things. And that seems like such a simple idea, but if we can all get to that place where we can say, I might not know everything, but I know something, it'll change your life. Because I might not know what tomorrow looks like for my future. I might not know what God's plan for my life is, but I know that when I was six years old, God touched my heart in a way that I can't even explain. I know that when I was uh, 13, God was there for me in a time where I could have got really bitter, but instead he decided to grow me through that. I can tell you that there was a season of my life where I battled, like I said, anxiety and depression, and God delivered me from that. See, those are things that nobody can argue with. Nobody can say their opinion on because it's fact and it's the way that God has moved in me. And we all have those things in our life that we can claim, that we can say, you know what? God is real because I felt him. And if you haven't had that in your life or you haven't been able to see that in your life, you can have it tonight. All you have to do is say, God, show me. Show me how you've redeemed my story tonight. So whatever it is for you, uh, however you wanna respond, I just ask that you do it because The Bible talks about how life is but a vapor. And a life filled of faithfulness is a life that's abundant. So choose tonight to step out on a faith that's bigger than your own.